Welcome to the pod. All right, guys, welcome to another amazing episode of Two Hussies in a Pod. We have a very, very special guest. I'm Eliyahu, here with Avidan, and we have with us all the way from Manhattan, Rabbi Mark Wiles joining us. Uh, his son is a, is a known Tzfadi, even though he travels the whole entire world, but we, we, we consider him, we take uh, credit for his Tzfadiness that he spreads his vibes, but uh, <laughs> now we're going to get a different exposure into the, the father that started it all. So uh, welcome everybody, and uh, hello to Rabbi Mark. Hello to you guys. What an honor and a pleasure. Nice to meet you. It took a while to get this uh, podcast going, but uh, here we are finally, so you might as well take advantage. Um, we're in uh, very interesting times, right? Elul is uh, is upon us. We're in the middle of it, right? And uh, the, the energies are getting higher and higher. And uh, this, this episode really is a special one because um, not only we want to get into everything you're doing with the Manhattan Jewish experience, right? And everything that's going on there in New York. And I have some very, like, really just curious questions about what's going on there with our brothers and sisters. But uh, why don't we jump in actually to begin with, with, with the current project that you're working on, this 40 day mm -hmm. challenge. It's, you know, it's making its rounds online. And we've seen it, different things going on. You have your book as well. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that. And then we'll go in, you know, backwards into your story. Yeah. So um, first of all, thank you. Um, to you. Um, Chaim. <laughs> um, it's really a pleasure, guys, uh, to be here and a um, big fan of uh, your podcast and everything you guys are doing. And, um, you know, I started um, MGE 23 years ago to reach out to our less affiliated Jewish brothers and sisters. You guys know New York City is just like it's home to so many Jews that are just not for, you know, not to any fault of their own, pretty much disconnected from from Torah and um the high holiday season is for, I don't know how it became this way. I don't know who decided that Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur should be the two times a year most American Jews come to services. I don't know who, I don't know whose decision that was. Probably not the best marketing decision, I'll, I'll be honest, because uh, you know, I would have picked probably Simchas Torah, you know, <laughs> the next week. If you want to get people back, actually give them a little joy. But um, so I wrote this book called The 40 Day Challenge to give people some preparation because everyone just walks into Rosh Hashanah and Kippur sort of waiting for the magic to happen. And then they walk out like, oh, that was very pleasant. It was very nice. But like, I don't know, I'm kind of the same person I was before I came in. Uh, I, I'm not really so changed or moved or inspired. Um, and, you know, there's a great line that I put in the introduction from Rav Salvechik is that there can be no holiness without pre preparation, right? That's Ein Kedusha Beli Hachana. The idea that like, about the Hasidim, right? The original yeah. Hasidim, they would prepare an hour, pray for an hour, come down from their prayer for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's why Hasidim know how to daven <laughs> because they prepare, you know, and it's us, us Litvaks are still struggling with the whole davening thing because we just kind of jump into it. We do our thing, we get out and it's a mistake and it's a mistake to do that for us Shaniyam Kippur. So I wrote this book to give 40 little tidbits that could be read every day. They're just like sort of bite-sized, digestible ideas um, that you can read in a five-minute span. And and then just hopefully it builds. You know what I mean? Malin B'Kodesh, that we go up in sanctity, we get to Rosh Hashanah, and finally by the time Yom Kippur hits, we're in a different place because we've done some prep work. That's basically the idea behind it. 
amazing, amazing, goal-oriented. Now is the, you know, now is the time. One of the things we learned, we have a Chabura here every week in, in, in Sfat, one of the things we learned last night is the importance of, of, of the in, internal side of tshuva, which is returning your heart to Hashem. But really the only way to prove that your heart desires to be close to Hashem is by actions. It's, actions are not really the end-all be-all, right? They're just a proof to the most inner desires. So mm. it's not about necessarily fixing your actions all the time. You really need to live with Hashem, but your actions are the only way to prove where you, how much you really want something. Right? It's the only way to prove yeah. it. But, and it's also, funny, on the other uh, hand, it's a lot so much to do. So you have to break it down to this 40, 40 steps. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but it's actually, that was my entry today. Today's day five and the challenge. And I, qu- I quoted the famous line from uh, the Sefer HaChinuch, which was of unknown authorship. It's a fad. Yeah. Do they believe uh, he was from Sfat, Sefer Chinuch? I think it's right, right, Azkari, no? So they don't know. The scholars don't really know who wrote this book, but it was written during medieval times. But he's got a famous line, After one's actions, follow one's heart. And that's why Judaism is so mitzvah-centered, that, that what we do, you know, the Baal Shem Tov famously said that you are where your thoughts are. And that's true. But how do you get your thoughts to be in a certain kind of place? How do you get your emotions, your feelings to be more connected to a higher plane? And the way we do that in Torah is through mitzvos, is through the actions. And, you know, the Balatanya famously taught that, you know, every mitzvah pertains in some way to either to your thoughts, your speech, or, your, or your, what you do. That's the way we operate as human beings. And... Um, so that's why Judaism is so mitzvah-centric. You know, it's all about performing certain activities. I hate calling them rituals because they sound so ugh, rituals. But if you engage in certain activities, those activities can then have an impact on the way you think, on the way you feel. And, uh, you know, you can tell people, be kind, and you can philosophize till you're blue in the face about kindness. But if you don't actually start doing acts of chesed, performing acts of kindness, of loving kindness for other people, you're not going to grow from chesed. You're just not going to, you're going to be the same person. You'll know about it, but you won't be it. So that's actually, it's funny because you just talked about actions and, you know, I'll tell you something. I used to be very skeptical about Chabad guys on the street putting tefillin on, on like stop, you know, I don't know. I guess I don't look so Jewish and you can't see my yarmulke sometimes and, I still get stopped. Hey, did you put on tefillin? I'm like, yeah, actually, I'm a rabbi. I try to get other people to put on tefillin. <laughs> and so I used to be like, like, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean? I'm trying to get Jews to put on tefillin. It's the most incredible thing in the world. And now I have to tell you, in my old age now, I start realizing the profundity because I learned the Tanya and I've been teaching it for the last two years. And the Tanya really teaches that, that these mitzvahs really sort of open up. They really reveal... These mitzvahs really reveal, uh, you know, different aspects of God's light. Even if the person who's doing the mitzvah doesn't fully understand what he or she is doing, they're still they're, they're still bringing God's presence into the world and into their own lives and and impacting their own souls. Um, but I didn't really get that until I started doing more Tanya learning. 
Yeah, talking about Tanya, I read something like very interesting, like a few days ago in the Daily Tanya. I don't know if it was already mm-hmm. a week ago. I was talking mm-hmm. about this concept about tzedakah and like and about learning Torah and about the whole purpose of the world and how back in the day, like back in, like in the same times of our sages, like the f- number one thing to do was learning Torah. Like this was like the the best thing you could do is like learning Torah. This is the most important thing. But actually now, saying in Tanya, it was already in the Alter Rebbe's time, already 200 years ago. He's saying like how actually now it's like tzedakah that is like the most important thing to do now is like literally acts of kindness. We're such a stage of just like action is the most important thing at this stage. Interesting. And uh, I found it very interesting. Different, different times, you mean, different times reflect different aspects of Torah, of Jewish life. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting how, like, we move into these different stages, and now it's, uh, now it's about this one. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we're very close, and it's actually easy, you know, learning Torah, I mean, it's, you could, you could debate what's harder. It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Depends who. Well, it also depends who you are. You know, for yeah. some people, sitting and learning, it comes yeah. very natural. For others, you know, I just got back from the airport. Uh, you guys know my oldest son, Yosef. I just took my youngest son, Yehuda, um, to go. Uh, he's going for Shana Bet for another year of learning in Yeshiva in Israel. And the lines were like, it's unbelievable. We stood there for two and a half hours on this line um, just to make sure he got in. And look, there are literally dozens of flights going to Israel now, right? This period of time, filling up all the seminaries, girls, guys, like 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. It's unbelievable. I mean, I don't know how many. I posted it on my Instagram feed. Um, I, I just I just like, look at these lines. It's like people waiting online to go to Israel to learn. It's unbelievable. I, I, you know, we kind of take it for granted, but it's, we live in very special times. Really a blessing to see it in the, the you know, the advances of technology and travel. It makes it so much easier um, to, to, like, it's it's never been easier for a Jew to come to Israel, right? It's never oh. been easier for, for it to be able to be here, to live here, and especially to get here. I mean, you know, you're in New York within 12 hours, you could be here, you know? It's, uh, totally, totally. It's, it's um, no more excuses. <laughs> and, literally, and literally a year ago it was the hardest time to come to israel <laughs> yeah you know what i guess i guess you know it's funny that i've done that you're saying that because it's like we got so used to it being easy and then it became such a hassle to go there we mg had two trips canceled these pet last summer 2021 and the summer before 2020 and um that's why we brought over 50 people this year because we had people waiting to come mm. with us and um you know you really appreciate it when it's kept from you so so yeah. what is uh manhattan jewish experience what what do you have going on there in new york and um you know obviously if you could maybe just introduce a little bit of the background of what is the current state i know new york has a ton of jews leaving i'm, mm-hmm. I'm guessing that those are not exactly your crowd right um there's probably the more the families the more conservative families that are already established that are picking up and leaving right but what is going on with young jews our age in their 20s and their 30s in yeah. new york right now and what is Manhattan so the, jewish experience doing within that in okay that realm of that, it's a uh, so there's a lot there's a lot i would probably say there's three groups there's like you know the very large singles 
observant religious Jewish community in their 20s and 30s. A lot of them live in the city. If you guys have ever spent a Shabbat on the Upper West Side, have, I, have you guys ever done that? No, so quite I, was sing I was single in Jerusalem. <laughs> you were single in Yerushalayim, okay. So <laughs> I was single. I've been in this neighborhood for a long time. I'm married 26 years, and I was single on the West Side for five years. So that just gives you a sense of how long I've been living here, okay? Uh, and, I, and I raised four kids in the city. So... So there's a very large, growing, vibrant, religious singles community in Manhattan. It's got a lot of powerful, wonderful things to it. And it's got some dysfunction to it as well. It's got some problems. Um, then you have a very large, unaffiliated or less affiliated singles population living all over Manhattan. West side, east side, downtown, village, east village, west village. And that's the group that MGE, that I started MGE basically to try to engage. Because it was killing me that there's so much vibrancy in the other group and very little Jewish vibrancy and very little in the other group. You know, there's some exceptions here and there, but basically it's the yeshiva day school kids who are living, you know, Shomer Shabbat, Sabbath observant, living in the city, you know, filling up the large modern Orthodox synagogues, the uh, the Jewish Center, Oiv Tzedek, um, Young Israel, if any, any of you listeners have heard of those shuls. And then you have a larger group, a much larger group of 20s and 30s who are off the, they're off the grid. They're in the city. They come here after college. Um, some of them went to college here. Maybe a lot of them went to Columbia or NYU. Um and, and they're in the city, or they went to Harvard, Yale, or Boston University, or University of Michigan, or Wisconsin, and they come to New York, and New York is this hub, and that's why I started it here. I started here because I wanted to make as big of an impact with as young of a population as possible, and it's a great age, I have to tell you. I think it's easier in a sense because there are a lot of other outreach groups on college campus. I don't do college. Now, God it's bless my- not mature my, enough. You know, it depends. You know, Chabad does amazing work on a million college campuses. Meor does amazing work on college campuses. They do great work. It all depends. It's, I think it's a little more challenging. You know, one of my teachers, Rabbi Buchwald, said, I, I prefer to wait till they sobered up. <laughs> they finish college and sobered up, move to New York City, get a job, start living like a normal human being. <laughs> it's a little easier to teach such a person Torah. Um, and, <laughs> rent, you know, um, taxes, rent taxes, yeah, paying taxes. No, but, right, this right, is when you need they God. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't have a mortgage yet. They don't have a mortgage and they don't have like, they don't have a lot of expenses, but hey, living in New York City, man, it ain't cheap. But it's not just New York City. We have people coming from Queens, from New Jersey, from Connecticut, from the surrounding areas. Manhattan's very expensive to live in. So I have a lot of students coming in from Hoboken, from Jersey City, from um, Astoria, Queens. Uh, I'm from Queens originally, so I kind of know those neighborhoods. So uh, MJ started out to try to bring that crowd in to be able to experience some of the beauty of Jewish life in New York and really the beauty and the profundity of Torah. And uh, we thank God had a wonderful, wonderful response. We do big Shabbos dinners. We have three locations, by the way, in Manhattan. I picked three spots where lots of 20s and 30s live west side east side downtown i've got rabbis in each we have 18 people on staff right now 
He is speaking this Shabbos, little plug. <laughs> um, he's speaking Friday night <clears throat> and Shabbos morning. Very talented guy. My son, Yosef, who you guys know, just did a beautiful musical meditation with him. Um, he's uh, There's just tremendous opportunities that New York has. I'm very proud, by the way, a lot of our graduates, some of whom become Balei Tshuva, some not, have made Aliyah. We have over 35 graduates who've made Aliyah. Uh, we have 344 couples that have met what and it, married. What does it mean to graduate? Uh, not to turn that down, just that's, that's amazing statistics, yeah. first of all. But what, what does that mean to graduate from MJ? Well, you know, people who, well, there's two types of graduation, graduates. One graduate is they don't, they've kind of grown out of our educational programming. We do a beginner's minion on Shabbos. We do basic Judaism classes, Hebrew classes, and they're done with that. They've become more observant, more knowledgeable, more learned. They, they get to mainstream. The other type of graduate is someone who just simply moves out of the city. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't want to live in Manhattan anymore. Either it's too expensive but, or they have enough. They're still alumni. They're still alumni. You know, we got them yeah. on the WhatsApp group. We got the, you know, and we, I keep in touch and, um, but, um, so we have a lot of, I mean, I'm doing this 23 years. So, and I would say there's like a new chevra that cycles in and out. I would say every three or four years because people don't stay here forever. And that's kind of like the cycle of a lot of people's spiritual religious growth. So thank God. A lot of them have met and married, moved, moved to the burbs, some to Eretz Yisrael, uh, which obviously is a huge, a huge, um, something we're incredibly proud of for sure and um very amazing yeah and it's it's just been, it's been great you know like and everybody's different you know some people love the social stuff so they'll come to the shabbos dinners we have cocktails on the roof we do retreats we have a ski retreat to vermont we have a spring retreat in the berkshires and other people just like are more intellectually oriented they want to come to the shirim to the classes some more more you know they'll come to a musical meditation that my son does or or, or a class a discussion on Kabbalah that that Daniel will, will is now leading for us. Um, everybody's different. You got to kind of have a wide net, throw out as much differing kinds of portals into the community, into Yiddishkeit, so that you can you can really sort of maximize who who will come and who will grow. What are what are your challenges right now when it comes to engagement <sighs> or whatever it is, or retention? I would say attention is number one. Oh, we've lost see, some attention. Do you see a difference in that in generations when you see this? Type oh, of- yeah. There's no question. I mean, I used to be able to teach a class for an hour, easy. I could get away with it once in a while, but all of our classes have been reduced to 40 minutes now, from an hour to 40 minutes in the last 20 years. That's number one difference. Number two difference, I would say, you know, it used to be when I started out 25, 25 30 years ago, you know, people believe there was a right and wrong. And you just had to kind of make a case that Judaism and the Torah was God's, you know, prescription for morality in the world, right and wrong. And that's when like Asha Torah was very big on discovery and trying to demonstrate that the Torah comes from God. And how do we know that Maman Harsinai was, you know, from Hashem, that that event actually took place and there are still people still interested in that. I'm actually writing a book and I'm including in that 
I'm including like the famous Kuzari argument, the argument from mass revelation to explain things rationally. But today, a lot of my students are coming off college campus and they no longer subscribe to the belief in objective morality. They don't necessarily, yeah, it's hard. They don't, they've been, I'll be honest. I think they've been brainwashed. Some of them, not everyone. A lot of people are still open mind and they hear that's one perspective. Let me hear what the rabbi's perspective is. There are people with open minds and not so open that their brain fell out, you know? Um, But a lot of people have been a little brainwashed in my opinion on college campus that there really is no right or wrong. It's just your opinion versus my opinion. And everybody's correct and everybody's truthful and there's no true religion. There's no true anything. Everything is subjective and everything is relative. And that is very difficult to, to deal with. Um, so, um, I will tell you what the best solution to that has been. And that's Kabbalah and Hasidus. And I'm not just saying this cause I'm on your podcast. Cause it is, it is a little, because it's, the, the the classical medieval Jewish philosophy that I've been trained in, Rambam, Kreskis, Albo, Ramban to a certain degree, although Ramban wore, wore both hats. Very good, right. Very intellectual, very heady. And it definitely resonates with some people. And I still include it in my classes. I think only to go the Kabbalah and Hasidus route, in my opinion, is not the way to go. Unless that's your hashkafa, you know. Um, I think you got to present both. Sure. But I don't Maybe want, I, but I think it's, you. oh yeah. Yeah. Cause you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket and you don't want to, um, because they, you know, when you have 20 people sitting in a classroom, 10 people are more rationally oriented, 10 people are more spiritually oriented, 10 people are going to eat up the balatanya though. And the other 10 people are rolling their eyes. Like, what is this stuff? And the other, then there's the other group that really wants a rational basis. Rabbi, explain what this is about. That makes sense in logical Western rational terms. Um, so I, I, I'm a big advocate of trying to share. And when I teach a class, I actually, for I, like, me to come to Hasidus, I had to first rationally understand it. That was for me like a heart icebreaker. Well, I like, I, I'm a big fan of, of Chabad Hasidus. Um, not just because the outreach and the Rebbe, but because it's, it's, to me, it's a very well organized and laid out philosophy. A lot of people kind of associate Chabad with just, hey, just go with your flow. And it's not true. The more you learn the Balatanya, the more you learn, it's a very well thought out, organized philosophical most, outlook. Most, most Litvak Hasiduta there is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, it's like, but, and it's but very you know that. It's all in the head. It's all, it's all yeah. that organization of the mochin of, yeah. of the, of the intellect of it. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I'll tell you one last challenge I'm having. And this is very, very difficult. The other challenge I'm having is, oh, no. um, and I heard this from Arvarin Soloveitchik, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik's brother 30 years ago. He was, he was lashing out at the then head of the reform movement, Alexander Schindler. This is 30 years ago when I was in YU. And because Alexander Schindler was the head of the reform movement, he was advocating patrilineal descent, that we should broaden the definition of what is a Jew. 
And I remember I never saw him so upset. And I don't know. I was like, I thought he was like overreacting almost. This is this is not Rabbi Joseph B. Salvechik. This was his brother, Rabbi Aaron Salvechik. I this is to learn under. And he was like, you're going to split the community into two by changing the definition of what is a Jew. This is what a Jew... This is the definition of a Jew for thousands of years. This is what the Torah sources teach. Don't change it. And they did. And I will tell you, it was prophetic. This is my my other major problem I'm contending with, that I have so many students whose last names are Rabinowitz, Schwartz, Cohen, okay? Levy. Cohen, Levy. They had Barbat mitzvahs. They went to Hebrew school. And they're they not a lot of Jewish. They went to the IDF. They served three years. They got shot at. Yep. And they're not halakhically Jewish. And it's not their fault. It's not their fault. And I'll tell you, it's one of those painful conversations that I'm having to have again and again, sitting down with someone and explaining because because their mother never converted or it wasn't, it wasn't a serious conversion and that they need to go through this. And Rabbi, my father was the president of our temple. Or like what you just said, Eliyahu, um, you know, I, I served in the Israeli military. You're telling me I was going to take a bullet for the Jewish people? You're calling me? You're saying I'm not Jewish? You tell someone like that, by the way, you need to go through a geras. You need to go. Now, I we've been relatively successful. I've been working with a lot of people, and I do it very quietly because some people I'll tell. I'll say, listen, this is just between us. You don't need to tell anyone. Some people don't want to tell their parents. It's insulting. Yeah. And, but it's, it's difficult. It's not simple because, you know, you, you can't do a proper conversion unless the individual is really going to commit to living a life of Torah and mitzvot. And that's not exactly where if you don't do the conversion, then you just leave them with a shattered reality. uh, And now you maybe push them even further. Right. Yeah. But you can't let them live in a lie. You can't live in a lie. And then I have a particular issue at MGE. So it's interesting the way you put that because I don't want them to live a lie and I feel a responsibility. But let's say, let's say I could sort of deal with that. <laughs> I have a bigger issue. They keep coming around to MGE. They get married. And I, yeah, that, that number I gave you of 344 couples, <laughs> I'm very proud of. I don't want that to be the 345th. And now I've, I've basically facilitated that which I've been fighting against my whole life which is, you know, Jews and non-Jews marrying, trying to, you know, we're trying to get Jews to marry Jews and live lives of Torah and mitzvot. And so I will tell you, that's a very, very challenging. I, the good news is that there are some very wonderful conversion programs that I've been working with. And I'm going on Friday, not mentioning who it is. I'm going on Friday to help somebody. I'm going to the mikvah. I'm not on the Beit Din. I'm just like the sponsoring rabbi. I, I teach, I help guide the person through the process but um i work with the rca a lot i don't know if you guys heard of the rabbinical yeah. council of america whatever the big rabbinic group mostly yu rosh yeshiva and they've been very helpful and they're very reasonable but they their hands are tied a little too they can't just convert anybody because they, they they their last name is rabinowitz they need they need the person to be you know committed to 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 this kind of lifestyle so i would say those are my biggest challenges uh, it's extremely interesting because they all kind of tie together with this idea of these new, these new age beliefs that are coming out of the academic world of that, right? That there is no such thing as uh, as definitive 
uh, genders or or religion or this and and nation states there's no nation states we're all just human beings we're all everything is like esker right on the other hand if you look in like it was just rev cook's your type right to always look at like the the shorish the the spiritual root that is the godly point that is giving life to anything in the world especially the kweepa right it can only negative forces in the world can only exist by way of the, the the good holy spark that's in it so yeah, in the end of the day, we are all Hashem. We are all one. And on the big, big, big grand scheme of things, it's all infinite and it's not limited. But in this world, right, we can't forget that we're we're planted in this world and there there is masculine, there is feminine, there's Jewish, there's yeah. non Jewish, right? There's a leader and there's well, a I tell, I, what I tell world. Yeah, I, it is one of the whole points that I and I and what I tell people is that they're missing out. They're missing out on the roles that really give meaning to so much of our life. Yeah. Like you, you brought up like the gender fluidity issue and friendships. Like there is something that women uniquely, you know, bring versus male, right? And there is also something like a parent. You know, it's interesting halacha. We take it for granted you don't call a parent by a first name. I have a lot of my students who call their parents by their first names. And when I try to explain to them why we consider that inappropriate, they say because, you know, if you want to, if you want to get out of the relationship, you can have lots of friends, you can have peers, you can have equals. Those are called friends. Those aren't parents. And if you make your parents into friends, you lose them. You lose a lot of what you can get from being, from being a child of a parent. Do you want to lose that? And do you want to lose that in the gender area? And you mentioned before about countries and civilizations. I'm a big John Lennon fan. My dad was actually, if you guys are Beatles fans at all, I don't know if you know the music at all, but um, I'm a crazy uh, Beatles fan. And my favorite was John Lennon. And um, so John Lennon has a famous song, Imagine. Okay. And imagine there's no country. Imagine there's no God. Imagine there's nothing. It's like what you said, Elio. It's just total have care. It's like... So I said, you know what, you, if you, you can imagine that, but imagine not feeling a sense of loyalty to anyone in particular because you don't have any groupings. You only feel passion and absolute intense love. If he was alive, I would say, look at your love for Yoko, who's still alive. Um, you know, the only reason you have more love for Yoko than someone else is because you made her, you, you preferred her over other people. Nikudesh, it's sanctified, separated from the whole world. You're mine and not anybody else's. You're not allowed to touch anybody else. You're not allowed to be seen alone with anybody else. That is, why? Not because uh, you're in trouble and you're no, and, and it's and you're less. No, because you're so special. You're so precious. And you can yeah. have, by the way, that, that reference to marriage that you just said is excellent. I actually, I gave a speech, I can send this to you, about the Jewish concept of universalism. But I, I brought that up. Why does a chatan say to the groom says to his intended bride, you are sanctified to me, not to anyone else. Because that's what's going to make their relationship special. It's unique. It's exclusive. And it's the same thing. We're not going to want to do things for fellow Jews in a more passionate way if we feel that same feeling for all people. Just like ask any parent, is it chauvinistic for them to treat their children better than they would treat some other parent's child. And that would be, that's actually bad parenting. 
to teach to, you should treat your kids better. You should be looking out more for your own children than other kids. That's what makes life, you know, Avidan, you said something about that's like, that's the whole world. That's literally human existence. Um, and we just have to be nice about it and respectful. And I think what you did before Eliyahu, when you brought up, you know, Rav Cook, there's unity and there is this idea of achtos and connectedness with everybody, but that doesn't mean everyone's the same. And I can just flip flop and we have to articulate that fine line, you know, cause we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. It's uh, this week's parasha as well. I mean, I don't know when this episode will be out, so hopefully, but uh, right, the Shatrim, that if you have two tribes in one city, uh, two different Betedins, two different sets of cops, two different set of court cases. And if you're from Shefet Ben Yamim and you're, and you're Alakha and your laws are set up like this, you don't go to Shevet Dan to go to the court case, right? They have different rules there. It's different, right? So I, I, I brought this, I bring this up a lot that a few, a few months ago, I was dealing with two people from the U.S. Embassy, right? Diplomats, political diplomats, mm-hmm. part of Biden's crew here chilling in Tel Aviv. And uh, at the end of this discussion, the, the woman said to me, like, what's your view on America? And obviously she doesn't know She's not, she's not Jewish. She doesn't know, right? They all hear about dual loyalty, dual loyalty. I have one loyalty, right? And it's not even to Israel, it's to God and the Jewish people, right? Like one loyalty. So like she was, didn't know what she was asking really, but I, my answer to her was the biggest problem with America is the lack of diversity. And she was like, what? Right, this, we're talking about Joe Biden's political mm-hmm. diplomacy team. And I'm telling her your country has no diversity, right? And she's like, what? I said, yeah, because American diversity. Do we just lose Eliyahu? A- Andrew, what, why, why is Eliyahu keep falling off? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was interesting. Keep, keep, keep. I don't know what's going on, but it, it's, it's me that it's my thing. It's the third time this happened this episode already, but all right. So basically, um, right. So I, I told you that America's problem is the melting pot, that the melting pot is everyone come move here. You can be Jamaican, you can be Jewish, you can be Irish, you can be Catholic, Protestant, right. But really what they're doing in the end of the day is you come out an American right? mm-hmm. and then you lose what makes you a Jamaican. You lose what makes you so successful. You lose that spark that made the Israeli guy come out of the army and move to America and become a sales manager of a huge team within months because his head is different, right? Because he's actually Israeli. And that's what was so special about the tribes. When we came out of Egypt, we had 12 different lanes in the splitting of the sea. Every tribe walked down their own path, but they could have all see each other through the sea, right? So you're completely together. But real diversity is everyone's in their own camp doing their own thing, but we're working unified towards something. And America does not have that at all. That's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, America prides itself on doing that. But I guess the reality is you want to be successful here. A lot of people try to shed their differences. You know, um, yeah. you know, as you said, like the melting pot, um, you don't really have to theoretically. That's what the founding fathers of this great country you know, said, they, they, they said, you, you could do your own religion, do your own this, but just follow the rules and the laws. That's all. But you can still stay ethnically or religiously who, who you want to be. But we both know, we all the three of us know that, unfortunately, that's not the reality. 
Um, and that's unfortunately not been the reality for our Jewish brothers and sisters in America. And that's what kills me because no one ever asked us to do this, meaning no one asked any Jew to give up their Judaism to be a good American. In fact, it's just the opposite. The, the, um, the founding fathers escaped basically the Church of England that was imposing a certain religious ideology so they could practice their religion freely. And then people in the name of being American are giving up their religion, <laughs> you know? So it's, um, exactly. it's a bit of a shame. How, how, but... how do you install Jewish also being in New York? You know, a Jew is looked at as borderline a terrorist, right? By a lot of the people, especially on the college campus, Columbia University is one of the worst yeah. places to be as a Jew. And it's like, I'm sure, forget gender identity. How do you, how do you instill Jewish identity in, a, in such a place, in such an environment? So, so first of all, it's important to know that the perceptions out there of Jews as terrorists is a very left um, kind of perception that a certain segment of the media promotes because they're so bought into the Palestinian narrative. But the typical person on the street, I'm not saying they're not influenced by this, but I don't think everybody is so bought in. Okay, I think that's unfortunately, and I went to Columbia. I went to Columbia for graduate school. And I had some experiences with professors, with with other students there who are just ignorant, literal ignorance about Israel's creation, uh, you know. And listen, it's not their fault. And, 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 and I was a bit of a fan of Barack Obama, but Barack Obama's opening speech, this is 2008, when he went to Cairo, he talked about, Jews being back in Israel as a result of the Holocaust. And he was and he was trying to be nice. He was trying to be like, they need a safe haven. Look what they've been through. Zionism, the way he described Zionism, was some sort of new kind of phenomena after the Holocaust. And he completely negated thousands of years of Jews coming back to Zion. And and not and so if if that's the if that's the president of the United States, who's a bit of an intellectual although he was very ignorant in this regard, very ignorant in this regard. Um, just to say that this is a place where Jews have been coming from the days of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and there have been periods of time where it was more difficult for Jews to live their life. There's never been a moment in history when Israel has been devoid of Jews. It, it has. So what do you expect the typical person to believe? So I, anyway, um, so first of all, just knowing that that's their mindset, I will tell you, I stay away in my classes and from when I give drashot, I stay away from politics. I, I, I don't think anything good is gained. If people ask me a question, I for sure share my understanding of the situation. I have a degree in international affairs. I have a law degree. I spent a lot of time on this stuff. I do teach proactive classes about history because I think that's important because a lot of this is uh, history that has been... Um, played around with in my opinion and by the way i don't think i don't think it's a black and white situation i don't think uh everything israel has done is perfect and i don't yeah. think that there hasn't been some casualties of war in terms of the palestinians and displacement and all that but you have to understand it within the context of what actually happened in the years leading up to 48 and then ultimately the six-day war but most people think just look at that that example, the Six-Day War. Most newspapers, when they refer to the Six-Day War, 
when Israel captured the West Bank and the Sinai, the Golan Heights, when Israel, nobody has anything before that center, that sentence. <laughs> okay. No one has any idea that Israel is about to be attacked. They took it in a completely, completely defensive war and have been negotiating give pieces to give parts of that back for peace ever since. Um, if you just make people aware of that, recommend some books, you'd be surprised. Uh, I, I don't think the war... But what about I don't Jewish, think it's... What about real Jewish identity? Because me personally, right, as a, as a 29-year-old, right, on Instagram, seeing what a lot of my peers and a lot of our, the people in our age group that are out there trying to put out their messages, right, a lot of what I see is if you're not connected to Israel, and when I say Israel, I'm talking to the state of Israel, right? If you're not a Zionist, you're not as connected to Israel, then you're not, you don't really have Jewish identity, right? And you have tons of people talking and defending and promoting Hasbara and Israeli defense and, and promoting all these things of growing the connection, which I understand is completely important, right? And it might be that first step. You have much more experience with this than I do, right? That's why I'm asking this. But what about when does the when can we make a transfer and say, hey, listen, you know what? Birthright is not about birthright. That's not Judaism, right? Birthright is not. Right? What? What about Shabbat? What about and not from a halachic point of view, right? From a conscious right. of like this is right. what we do, right? What about like you know these kind of ideas? When does that? When can that be introduced? When is that brought into? So I, I really I think it depends on the Jew because. There's two types, I think. There's someone who's really bought into Israel and the state of Israel. And then I think you're right. You have to, how do you then help that person find the roots of their love for Israel? What are the roots? The roots are Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The only reason Israel has any significance is because of the history we've had with Israel as it's played out in the Torah. So you have to, you, but I really take it from the other perspective, which is I start the other way. I just start why are we here? We're human beings. And what, what makes us different as Jews? We have this great mission. The mission is to be an Orla Goyim. It's to be, it's to reflect God's light in the world. What is God's light? Oh, and how is Israel part of God's light? But I, I'm taking it from a different perspective. You know, but I understand that for a lot of people who are very much bought in on the Jewish nationalistic Zionistic level, and they don't really know the roots. And it becomes a religion in and of itself. You know, the, the Hatikva becomes the new Shema, you know? So it's not so simple. It's not so simple helping that Jew find where it comes from versus helping someone who's not really bought into Israeli nationalism, you know, who's not a Jewish patriot, if you will. You know, it's not so simple. You really have to start from the very beginning. God created the world. He created different nations. Every nation has a different purpose. The purpose of the Jewish people is to reveal God's light in the world. We need a place to do that. That's called Israel. So it really depends on who the person is. I think everybody, it's very hard for me to give an answer that works for everybody in any of these areas. I really think it depends who you're talking to. It really does because it really mm -hmm. depends on the person whether this is Israel, the state of Israel. It could be literally a stepping stone or it could be like uh, the opposite. It could be a trick, it could be a trap. You could get stuck in, like you said, a tikva can become now the new shema, it can be the new thing. Yeah. You get stuck there and uh, some people- are But a lot of, a, but, but I will say this probably, and I don't have a study to prove this, there's probably more Bali Chuva 
people who sort of went all the way, became fully religious, who started out as patriotic Jewish Zionists. For sure, I was like that. <laughs> I was also, I, 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 yeah, I was, I was also like that until, until the IDF, yeah. The thing is, what, exactly, what, right? I'm cu- yeah, no, I'm curious to hear you, I'm curious to hear your stories a little. What, what was that point of transformation? What? So for me, for me was, um, when I started to make Shuva and I started to realize, right, also the history ties into this. But when I started to realize, okay, the Torah is all filled with, right, and this is a funny thing that they always try to say, right? You know how many times Zion is mentioned in the in the Torah? <laughs> well, yeah, but that has nothing to do with Zionism. Zion is the name of Israel and Jerusalem, right? And that means that as us as Jews, we have an inherent, natural, historic, ancient connection to this place, no matter what ism you want to put to the end of it. Take out even Judaism. Am Yisrael, the children of Abraham and Yaakov, are connected to this land, right? So once I started to see that, and then you bring into the history side of everything that was with the Zionist movement, what was happening to the rest of the nation states around the Jews in the 125 years ago in the first Zionist Congress, right? What were those nations up to that inspired the rest of those Jews around them to want to also have a nation state, right? Poland was created then. All these other countries were starting to be created as nation states. Also, too, the Jews wanted to have there. So when I started to look at the whole thing, my takeaway was, why do I need this ism? from the 1800s, when this is literally much deeper than any is impossible. This is Torah and mitzvot on the deepest place possible. There's nowhere in the world I can be a better Jew, right? So why do I need this ism? And for me, when you add into the things that were done in the name of Zionism against Torah and mitzvot, it becomes very hard for me to connect to it, right? But the interesting thing is, right, when, when I went to the IDF, and then a, a lot of the things that, you know, there's the things that we don't all agree with. And you can understand why they're in place for security reasons. But in the end of the day, if you go through them, you can understand that they're not necessarily maybe the best or the easiest processes to live with, right? The difference with me was that when I came out of the IDF, I didn't go to Shovrim Shtika. I didn't go to the, I didn't go to Breaking the Silence or to J Street or to B'Tselem, all these organizations that are Jews for peace and Jews trying to celebrate, sell out, right? Why? Because for me, first things first is I'm Yisrael in the Torah. So I'm not going to go because I had a bad experience now and spit it in my nation's face. But I'm also not going to be call myself a Zionist, right? Mm-hmm. So what do I do? I go deeper in Torah and mitzvot, right? And I reach out to every Jew and any Jew that's possible. And I try to spread the light of, hey, brother, listen, you're about this far deep in the, in the kiddie pool. But there's a whole entire ocean beach, right? A resort with amazing, amazing activities filled with tradition and spiritual rituals and depth and knowledge that's called Torah and mitzvot. And it literally outdates Zionism by about 2,000, 3,000 years. So why don't you just check it out? You know, why don't you go deeper? You love Israel? Amazing. So why stop at a state that is only 74 years old, right? A dream that is only 125 years old. Why don't you go back? Why don't you tap in exactly what you said, right? That we're only here because of Abraham and Yaakov. That's me. But, uh, wow, wow, wow. Thank but, you for sharing but, that. But internally, right, when I look out and I see the, my Instagram feed, I'm like, wow, can you imagine some of these influencers with this power and the way they talk and the message and the tools they have? Can you imagine spreading Torah? Can you imagine taking a yeah. Shem Tov story and, and putting <laughs> it out to 100,000 followers? You know? well, but let me ask you a question, Eliyahu. Do you feel that you had to shed like the 
the Zionism that started like in the 1800s that you were talking about. Do you feel that because, yeah, there were d things done in the name of Zionism that were anti-Torah, but I feel that even though the promoters of modern-day Zionism, like Herzl and the others, Ben-Gurion, um, that without even them even knowing some of this, you know, which is why Ruf Cook, for example, was so positive about the Zionist movement. He didn't live, even live to see the state created, but he was so positive because he felt that these people were bringing about, the, you know, the Atchalta, the Geula, the beginning of the redemption. So I'm very positive about secular Zionism because I think it's in some way reflecting. And even if you don't subscribe to the Messianic Rav Cook kind of view, Rav Salvechik, who were my sort of teacher's teacher, um, was very into Zionism also because he felt that that after the Holocaust, that was that was Yad Hashem. Is a famous article where he talked about the six knocks and uh, from, from Shir Hashirim, Koldo Fake. And how could you see what's going on in modern times, anything other than, than Hashem's hand in modern history? Okay. So, so I'm just curious, like when you started becoming, because it sounded like you went from being a, I guess, modern secular Zionism into Torah, but do, do you think you have to leave the others, you I, know, the modern? I always, I always had Torah first before mm -hmm. I had anything to do with Israel, right? I was religious before I ever stepped foot in Israel, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I always had that and and also Sephardi. So it's like, it's not this like, uh, thousands mm -hmm. of years ago. It's like, literally, no, we, you know, my dad was an IDF. I had that side of it, but the... Um, the the interesting thing is like in Judaism, right? There's nothing's ever black and white, right? So I also see Eretz Yisrael as the beginning of the Geula, right? Uh, Medinat Yisrael, right? Not really Medinat Yisrael, but the fact that Medinat Yisrael allowed millions of Jews to come right. home, right? I can't not look at that. I'm not blind, right? I'm not going to the extreme where because of my principles, I don't see the clear miracle right in front of your eyes, right? But my my view on that is Yes, I understand that every single thing that a Jew does is, in the end of the day, completely nullified to Hashem's will. Even the sins that the Jew does are because Hashem wanted him to do it. If it happened, Baal Shem Tov says, then there was, Hashem wanted it to happen, right? Up until it happens, you have to control your actions. Once it happened, it happened. So I get all these things, but I think the biggest secret is, because there's still, it's not only about what Ben-Gurion did. It's not only about what Herzl attempted to do. There's still right now, in this current government, complete programs against the Jews and specifically the religious Jews and plans to completely get rid of any dream that we have here, right? In this current situation right now, in the name of Zionism, voted for and supported, right? But what happened? We have an amazing pasuk that the Chabadnikim specifically sing it after davening every day, every, min every minion. And it's written from before the Balatani, even the Chida brings it into ancient tradition. They can talk all the talks they want. They can make all the plans they want and have all their different, uh, you know, calculations of why they want to do things. In the end of the day, Hashem will flip it on them, especially if they're Jewish, right? Even easier, especially if they're Jewish. Hashem will flip it on them. So they set out to make a place that was a Jewish state, but democratic and not exactly religious. Right, because they didn't want yeshiva buffer. And, and do you think, everyone... and 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 Eliel, do you think? I'm curious, Avidan. I want to hear your story also. <laughs> I'm yeah. curious how you go from you're from Israel too, Avidan. For me, it's a little bit different. Like like he said, he was religious, and that that helped with his 
transition and going to the army. Right. I, mean, I was like Zionism first to begin with. That was more Zionistic. Oh, wow. and I went to and I went into the army, and and it took me actually a while. I mean, even after the army, I was very very strong Zionistic, and I even brought like this really flag to to my Chabad yeshiva, and they didn't like it so much. And there they started to like explain to me more the reality of things on a bit of a deeper level and that, uh, yeah, that I broke down. I remember I literally broke down in tears. I cried. Uh, I was, my reality was shattered in one night. And then from then on, I started seeing things a bit different. Why did, were you, were you, were they trying to say, cause Eliyahu was, I think alluding to this as well, that there are just forces within the secular Israeli government that are just trying to, Keep Israel from being more observant. Is that it? Yes. Not only is it told to us, the second it's told to you, you can see it clearly. Yeah, exactly. So when I started to like, I didn't take it necessarily for granted, but things started to click almost very quickly. And like, yeah, when when you you can see it, and it's it's not just that. It's like in history when you look back, like the reason it was it was founded, it, it was not with the good intention. Let's say it like that, but Thank God that God has good intentions. Even when other people don't have good intentions, the outcome is sometimes good anyway. So, Well, so maybe if you guys, I hope it's okay that we're going this way in the conversation. I just find this really interesting. <laughs> but what, what bad intentions did the founding Zionists have? I mean, they wanted to create a, they wanted to create a safe haven for Jews, maybe not a place for Torah and mitzvot necessarily. I get that. They weren't religious, you know, persons. Let me handle this diplomatically. Yeah, yeah I was going to let you do it anyway. Cause... <laughs> there's, there's a lot that can be said here. I don't want to go there right now because I don't think it's okay. a Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Your, this is your, this is your podcast. This is your podcast, no, 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 not I'll mine. I'll tell you why. We can definitely have this conversation, but there's, there's some things I'm not going to say, and there's some things that I feel comfortable saying, right? But for, uh -huh. for, to the beginning, let's just, with the fact that, right, there was never really, when this Zionist Congress started 125 years ago, right? All types of Jews came, religious, non-religious, and everything was there, right? But the leaders and the ones that had the power were definitely intellectuals right. from the left right. that had nothing to do with Judaism, and they didn't want anything to do with Judaism. They right. were being attacked as Jews, and they didn't like that. And other nations around them were trying to make countries. So they said, hey, listen, we're Jews. That Pintalayid, that Jewish spark that comes out when you start getting killed, right? That Mesiwot Nefesh that is in every single Jew, that started to come out in them. Obviously... Right when they're going to make a country, so what are they going to do? It's going to have Jewish symbols. It's going to have all these things. But really, if you think about it, right? For example, Herzl, huge hero, right? Now, as a Jew, can I look back and understand how Herzl was integral to my life right now? Yes, I can understand that, right? God forbid, Lavdil, I can also understand why the Spanish Inquisition was integral to how I am right now, and how other events in in Europe led to how we are right now, right? Not to mm -hmm. put the Jew and those in the same conversation, but right, everything right, right. in life, right, leads to something. With that said, the man tried to convert us all to Catholicism to get a country in Uganda, right? So where was his head? What was really going on? Why did he want to bring all the Jews together and put them in one place if it was not to be a Jews? What was your goal? I mean, I think, I mean, just historically, he was impacted. He was, you know, covering the Dreyfus trial. Right. And um, he, he was convinced, and this is why I have such great respect for Herzl, because he was an assimilationist. He thought that the answer to the Jewish problem was to assimilate, to shed your Judaism, 
And then when he saw it was impossible, he did a, a 180 and he said, you know, it's not going to work. Now he didn't, he didn't say, because we want to, he didn't say, because I want to stay Jewish. He said, I want to stay alive. <laughs> he said right. that the non-Jew, exactly. the Gentile right. is going to hunt us down no matter how much we assimilate. They're not going to care. And, and by the way, he was, but I, the reason I respect him is because most people can't admit that they were originally wrong. He was originally, he originally said the best way, you know, to be just to physically survive. Okay. That means uh, not that to we're make, no different than a goy, right? It's just, yeah, hundred percent. He didn't believe. Like yeah. He did not believe that there was anything uniquely distinct about the Jew or anything like that, but he wanted to physically survive. The only way to do that is to have your own country. Now, originally, he didn't believe that. Originally, he said the only way is to shed our Judaism, which is what a lot of others did. A lot of German intellectuals felt the same way. Uh, German Reform, Ju you know, Reform Judaism started out that way in Germany. Um, and, you know, when the Nazis came for Jews, they didn't ask whether you were a Hasid or a Reform. So, so Herzl saw that. He was prophetic. He realized that, like, it's not going to work. Just practically, it's not going to work. We need our own country. But because he did that, because he could break from what he thought was true to something else, even though something else was not such a Jewish value, it was just survival. Now, survival is a Jewish value. <laughs> Thank God he For did sure. that, and he started the first Zionist Congress to the. So I, so I, I don't. I, I, I don't see all the steps, yeah. right? I see all the steps, but there also there's there's different things. There's a lot of different things that that go on. That again, that governments are bad things. Politicians are are usually bad people, right? Uh, and they do bad things. And that's the history of the world, right? The, the more the more simple thing is that in the nature of the politician, if he's left it alone to do his own thing, he's going to probably do something wrong, right? If there's not checks and balances, there's not a way to try to make sure, sure. he's serving the right. people. His nature right. will take him to doing bad things. And a lot of bad things happen, right? But one, it was a constant thing that we've seen back then until now, and it's happening still to this day, is that, and we can say this, right? Living here in Israel, I yeah. know I know what it was like being in America or living outside of Israel and the longing that you have for Israel doesn't allow you to see anything bad. I know that feeling, right? Uh, and I know living here in Israel, I know going as a soldier that anything said about Israel, you don't bad about Israel, you you automatically defend whether you were they were right or wrong, right? But then there's like the okay, what's really going on here? And when you look at the what's really going on here, right? It's uh it's like for example, an American that's living in, in Dubai right now on business, right? 30, 40 mm -hmm. years ago, if he had that opportunity, everyone in Dubai looked at him like, wow, you're American? Like, I want to learn from you, I want to do this. Now the world climate, I don't know if it's so much like that, right? Wow, you came from America, that's cool, but like America's a, uh, a circus right now, right? America's a laughing stock of the world right now. So how does that American feel? So it's the same thing now, it's like kind of, when you see what was done here and what is being done so like now, what else what, what else are you talking about like what happened to the yemenite jews like that exactly. incident like, so that, that personal that... family personal family that you have uh, ben gurion shooting at a boat of holocaust survivors ben gurion trying to draft everybody and not wanting there to be a yeshiva learning in the end he right like you said like Herzl, realized well Hazon ish comes to him and says oh, we lost him Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that's 
That's not very. No, but let's keep going. Let, 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 let's keep going for a little more on this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So basically, there was a whole bunch of that that went on, right? There, people can look this up, right? It's, in the end of the day, it comes down, my personal view is this. If I was to be in front of an Arab right now that doesn't know anything about me, if he asked me if I'm a Zionist and I, and I can't really be open with him, I would say yes. Why? Mm-hmm. Because for him, I'm a Jew, and he needs to know that Judaism and Zionism and everything that goes into that is one, because if he's coming at me as an enemy, then it's all of us against you, right? But now when I'm sitting with my Jewish friend, I feel mm-hmm. I have an internal obligation to put down Zionism, right? Even, if, even at the most simple belief that a Jew has the right to exist in the land of Israel. No, he doesn't if he's not connected to Torah and mitzvot. No, he does not at all. The Torah says that itself. The Torah says that it will vomit you out of the land if you don't behave you, right? So, like, and not from a hard point, but from the fact that without the Torah, like you said, we have no place here. So for the Arab, for the hater, yeah, I'm a Zionist. I'm just like all the rest of these uh, Jews, right? But for the, mm-hmm. for the Jew, I think we need to, also the fact that Zionism was achieved. We're here. We're here. What now? We got Jerusalem, right? See, see, that's probably a better approach, which is that, you know, okay, there's a lot. Because you could look at a lot of these situations in two different ways. I think I think the Yemenite situation, without getting into it, was just a catastrophe. And the, one of the greatest chil Hashem's and crimes against Yemenite Jews. I don't know how you can justify what, what happened there. And, it, and more keeps coming out all the time. Um, but like, you know, the, the example you gave about Ben-Gurion firing on the Altalina, uh, you know, I'm not in favor of what he did, but I also could understand from his position what he did. I talk about how uh, uh, Nachum Begin, who was the head of the underground, would not fire back because he said the last time that Jew fought Jew was the Churban Bayit Sheni. And you study the Gemara and Gittin, the Kamsa Bar Kamsa story, and you see what happened. And he, and he, he had incredible fortitude, but, you know, there is that scene in defiance, if you've ever seen that movie, where where um, B- the Bialski brothers, one person, you know, uh, took exception to the way he was leading, and he shot the guy. Now, halachically, there's no justification. You can't kill him. But I also understand why he felt that if he didn't do something dramatic, he was going to lose authority, and all heck would break loose, which is probably what Ben-Gurion was dealing with. Which is exactly but, what happened between the brothers and Yosef. Right? It's yeah, a rebellion sure. against the king. We're all going to bow down to Yosef. The kingship is to Yehuda. What do you mean? Right? <laughs> yeah. But it's good to listen. I, I think, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I like the distinction you made between, you know, dealing with our enemies. We need to be one. We need to be unified. But when we sit down and talk to each other, we should be able to. It's just the only issue is, is that I hate, I hate, I hate. And it's, I almost protect my students when I bring them. We, we bring trips to Israel. I can't stand the end. The there needs to be love and respect between Haredim and secular Jews. We we're brothers and sisters. This is so sure. not what Torah wants from us, and it's hard. And I don't. And I think there are mistakes made on both sides. There's no question. Sure. I, I. But um, listen, I give it to you guys. You're there. At the end of the day, you guys are there. You served in the army. Kolakavod to you both. And um, I, I my yarmulke is off to anyone. Who keep fights on, for the Jewish people? <laughs> <laughs> I never got that response before. That was very cute. Um, uh, you know, I, I whatever. It's one of my. You can ask my wife this. This is and my kids. This is 
the hypocrisy that I've lived with my whole life, um, not living in Israel. You know, the Ramban famously, Nachmanides, wrote that, you know, keeping a mitzvah in Chutz Aretz, it's like batting practice. You know what I mean? You're not like in the bullpen. You know, it's like, well, it's like practice. You can develop it, but it's not it. Israel's it. But I feel like we're doing important work here. And as long as our brothers and sisters are here, you know, I've always told people, because I don't push Aliyah hard, because I want people to understand the importance of Torah in general. And then when they get more and more into Torah, they'll see the centrality of Israel and the mitzvah of Aliyah as well. But and then um, they might actually stay here for longer instead of bouncing back to. Oh Europe. yeah, oh yeah. That's another thing. Yeah, right? but if, you know, if you make Aliyah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Vessels, so they can actually stay exactly. Hundred percent, but it's hard. I mean, and um, Avidan, you grew up in Israel as well, right? No, I uh, I grew up in Belgium most of my life. Oh, you're from? Oh, I didn't realize that you're European. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so you have a whole other interesting yeah. story. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I'll call a to you guys because, um, I, first of all, the I'm, I just want to tell you why I think I'm a fan of your podcast because most of the students, people I come into contact with, have never met a chassid. Maybe they walked by them, they saw them on the train in Williamsburg or in Borough Park, or when they went to buy some Judaica and Mayor Sharim or Geula, they saw chassid. But it's a very different concept that the typical less affiliated Jew has of a chassid than what you guys are doing in your conversations. You guys are interesting and open, and you should continue to do that because you have to. It's, this is all about dispelling myths. There's so many myths that people have about Yahadut. And, and the first one is that religious Jews are brainwashed, closed off, not intellectually open or interested in anything else other than their little Torah and mitzvot. And I, 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 and I, I think you guys, I, I don't know if you're trying to do this, <laughs> but it's, it, it has that effect. Just a casual conversation between two interesting, thoughtful people. Um, and that, that, that in and of itself, I think accomplishes a lot. So call a vote to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you see from, uh, from our far, right? Uh, our, our brother on the other side of the pond taking care of uh, the flock of New York. We need it, right? We need it. And uh, for sure, it's important. You have an amazing team there, especially with Daniel, the millennial rabbi, you know, and uh, and together, together is the only way, like we said, right? Everyone needs to be in their own lane. I can't tell you now, and I know if I tell you, grow a beard and grow out your peyot, you're not going to do your job. You're not going to be successful in doing your job, right? So it's like everyone has to go. On yeah, I mean, path. look, I, I do, I do, a hundred percent. But I also, you got to be authentic. You got to be, you got to be who you are. Yeah. Uh, you know, my son, as you know, my son Yosef is became very enamored with the teachings of Rav Nachman and Kabbal and Hasidus, and he learns Arizal, and he's very. So he grew, he grew himself. That's natural with that. I, I just think it's a very important for us to be authentic and Baruch Hashem, Torah and mitzvot allow all of us to be who we really are without having to put something on for somebody else. And I, and I think that's what resonates. You know, we were talking about challenges with young people today. I'll tell you the greatest thing about young people today. They're honest and they're authentic and they want real. They want, that's why podcasts are so popular because they don't want speeches and formal kind of addresses and they want people chilling out and saying how they're actually feeling. So I, I, um, 
you know, I, I think you guys are doing that. I, I struggle with that because I've spent 20 years being a little more formal. I was a rabbi in a couple of, I used to have to wear a top hat and a fancy suit and a, in a, in a, in a very rabbi, formal. Rabbi Angel? Uh, different shul, but similar. <laughs> uh, that's Spanish Portuguese. I was a rabbi KJ and um, Akilah Yeshua. And, and by the way, they're amazing and I love them. Just, you know, the yakis. And I, I'm used to that. My mother, Olavashon, was a yaki. So, um, but people just want. So it probably drove you crazy that we were late and not on time. And, um... <laughs> oh, no. No, no. I have. I have some of the I have some of those traits too, <laughs> so uh, it works perfectly. We're both a little of a mess, so it's great. <laughs> Thank yeah. you so much, Rabbi Mark. Um, um, if we could just ask, you know, to just yeah. to wrap it up, one, yeah. where can anybody find you? Where can they find more from you? If you just mm-hmm. plug yourself. Okay, good. So, if anyone's interested, um, I have um, a pretty strong Facebook and Instagram presence. You can follow me, Rabbi Wilds, on. Uh, R-A-B-B-I-W-I-L-D-E-S on Instagram or uh, Rabbi Mark Wiles on Facebook. Uh, I've got a YouTube page. And um, if anyone wants to get involved with MJE, it's jewishexperience.org. We've got stuff going on literally every day of the week in three parts of Manhattan. Uh, A lot of great stuff. And besides the 40-day challenge, I wrote another book called Beyond the Instant. Uh, Maybe share your addresses with... um, um, with Andrew, and I'll, I'd love to send you copies of the books. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank and, you very uh, much. Obviously, we're going to get it from the book, but if you could just really bless us with some uh, some parting words or whatever it is that, uh, that that can inspire us to go deeper into Tshuva and closer to Hashem leading up to the, the days of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah that are coming on to us for, for the good well, of Israel. Well, well, I don't know how how well I'll do on that, but I will I will tell you that Oh, we just lost him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ah! um, I will say that Avira Da'aretz Machim, that the, um, it's a famous phrase from the Talmud, that the the Avira Da'aretz, the atmosphere of the land of Israel is Machim. It's conducive. It's spiritually conducive. So Hashem should bless you. You're both very passionate about Eretz Yisrael for all the right reasons. Hashem should bless you both that you should continue to absorb the spiritual holiness of the land and share that with all of your guests on your podcasts and that you should use this month of Elul Anilo Dodiva Dodili to be Makariv yourselves and the rest of Klal Yisrael, all of us together should use this month, very, very special month. So we're standing before Kodesh Baruch Hu, the Melech, you know, crowning Hashem Melech and Rosh Hashanah and, 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 and Berzrat Hashem getting a Kapara and a Tahara on Yom Kippur. We should all be zocher for a ksiva v'chasim atova. Should be a good gebench dior for all of us, for our families, and you should just go mechayel chayel, my friends, from strength to strength. Amen.